Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Stephen Levingston, the author of Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. This is his third book. He is the nonfiction books editor of The Washington Post. Steve, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, we appreciate your time. This episode is being released in the beginning of October as we begin a month-long series on the presidency. We're doing one episode on each of the two major candidates, as well as a series of episodes examining the presidency itself. Our Trump episode with biographer James Poniewozik is being released the same day as this one, so please check that out. And my goal um, for you in doing these episodes is for you to not only uh, get to know the nominees better, but I want you to know them um, for who they really are, not just the people who you see on TV. And one of the reasons I love Stephen's book is because it's about the relationship of much fascination in American politics, the things we don't see uh, on TV. Uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. It eventually became known as a bromance but it came about carefully and even somewhat reluctantly between these two men. And his book opens with a scene from 2005 when Barack Obama is listening to Joe Biden speak during a, com- uh, during a committee hearing while uh, both were still in the Senate. And you say, Stephen, that Obama was a man of few carefully chosen words and that he was astonished by the way Biden ran his mouth. He said, man, that guy can just talk and talk. What were their first impressions of each other, Stephen? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I think um, they kind of circled around each other kind of hesitantly when they first were both in the Senate at the same time. Um, you know, Barack Obama arrived as a big star. He had just won election um, and he came in as a freshman senator and um, Biden was an old timer there. He'd already been there more than 30 years. And so they kind of didn't really mix that closely and they were very different characters to begin with. Um, and Joe was basically the, the quintessential senator, kind of a guy who was into the process, loved the hierarchy, and was sort of the, the classic gas bag in a way. He, he would ramble on and on and on. And, um, you know, there's one incident in the book at the, at the beginning where um, they are both sitting on a committee together and, and Biden is um, going on and on as he was known to do. And Obama sitting at the far end of the table as a a freshman senator was listening and watching this and kind of almost rolling his eyes and wanting this to end. He jotted down a little note that he handed over to his advisor sitting behind him on on the committee bench. And there were just three words on that, on that note. And it just, and it said, shoot me now, which is basically a way to sum up how their early relationship was. It, it was not um, one where they, they really connected right at the beginning. Biden didn't, um, or Biden was of course used to being on the Sunday morning talk shows and he'd been doing it at the, basically the forefront of every major battle in American politics for decades. And Barack Obama was uh, more of a, a thoughtful person and didn't have a need to make himself uh, feel as though he was, um, had the, uh, the, the love of everyone around him. He was comfortable in his own skin. And so um, how do the two of them kind of do this dance around each other? Is there an understanding that they're different kinds of people? Do they have any relationship as senators? 
but I think you sort of get at that in a sense. My understanding from just doing the research on the two of them is, you know, Obama was an introvert. I mean, he really is. And Biden is the complete opposite. He's an extrovert. He feeds off of people. He loves being around people. He gets more energy off of it. And um, Obama doesn't. Obama gets worn down by it. There is some you know, incidents in the book where the two of them are out you know, on, the, on the campaign trail or, or in other places. And Biden will spend much more time with people, wanting to be with people, wanting to hang out and uh, you know, talk and chat to the very end. And Obama gets exhausted. He wants to separate. He wants to go be the thinker, be the cerebral run. Um, that he is. And, and that sort of played into the, to the beginnings of their relationship. They sort of um, were very different people. And, and in a sense, that's what kind of makes the way that they came together kind of sweet because they looked beyond those differences and saw other qualities in each other that they were able to, to latch onto and um, just found this opportunity to admire someone who is, wasn't like them. Well, let's um, go back to a little bit of the beginning here, as close to the beginning as we can get with Joe Biden. Um, he has a reputation of being this sort of soulful, authentic, down-to-earth kind of guy. His family lived in Scranton. Uh, at one point, you ride in his grandparents' house while his dad was selling used cars. How did his early years shape him? Um, well, I think that's right. I, he he does come from a working class background, really, and his family did have some economic um, hardships when he was young. And they had to move. They moved from Scranton. They moved to Delaware, and his dad was looking for work, and he managed to write himself, get himself back up again, and that's sort of where Joe gets all of these um, sayings that he likes to say out there when he's on the campaign trail and elsewhere about, you know, when you, it's, it's not that you get knocked down, it's how fast you get back up again. And he sort of learned that stuff in real way. It is real. It is part of his psyche. It's part of his being. Um, and, you know, that family, family overcame those things. It, it, he does. That's why he connects and can, can connect, I think, and has connected with um, working class voters. Hmm. Do we know about his mother much? Um, there no, wasn't much. Really... In, yeah, there wasn't much in the book. And I thought that was interesting. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I didn't really get into that too much, really. Interesting. Um, well, one of the things is um, the, there's a defining moment in his life, um, and it's painted, generally speaking, as the moment um, that his first wife died in 1972. He told her on their first date, and you have this in the book, that he would be a senator by the time he was 30, and then he would become president. And he said those things. Um, did her death put a sort of chip on his shoulder? Um, or reinforce his desire to succeed in politics? Uh, well, I think a little bit of both. Uh, he was absolutely devastated. You know, he's a, he's a man of the church. He's this very strong Catholic, and it sort of made him question all of his beliefs. He was, he was literally, after her death, along with his, their baby daughter, and his two sons were injured badly, he started um, questioning the whole, his whole faith and, and asking God how, this, how God could allow something like this to happen. So it was really a, a devastating moment to him. And he had just been elected to the um, Senate for the first time. And um, he wasn't even old enough yet to, to begin. He would have to pass his, have his birthday before he could begin in, in, a, in a few weeks. Um, but he considered not going. He thought that just he, would, he couldn't do it. He was in too much grief. Um, but this, the Democratic senators who were already um, there took him under their wing and, and 
coddled him and taught him and, and spoke with him and said, you know, he could try it for a few months, see how he feels. And if it doesn't work out, you know, it would be fine. He could go away. I think this is also sort of a, a, a beginning point in Joe's love for the Senate. Of all the things that he's done in his career, he truly loved being a senator. And he felt it was part of his family. And, and the way he was first brought into the Senate under their wings and, and you know, cared for by these, these old time senators like Kennedy, um, it just made him respect and love the institution um, in a way that, you know, it's hard to describe really. Um, so but, he needed the people. He needed the, the idea of being part of a brotherhood at this time where he experienced such a crushing loss. I think that's right. And I think that's probably the only thing that allowed him to, to take up his position as a senator. If it had been, if those guys had been more aloof, maybe if, you know, if, if it didn't work out that way, he could have easily backed off because he was just so devastated. Hmm. What kind of parent was he to Bo and Hunter? He became a single father. You know, we don't hear a lot about these powerful guys becoming single fathers, um, but no doubt about it, it's probably a part of more of their lives than, than we know. And certainly um, when it comes to Joe Biden, that's what he was. There really is a, some wonderful, sweet moments you have in this book about the type of dad that Joe Biden was to young kids. Yeah, I mean, the death of, of their mother and, and their sister kind of put it in Joe's head, I think, that um, the most important thing now is for him to be there for his kids, to raise his kids, to be, to be the best dad he could. And, and he made that pledge to himself. And, you know, he's famous for being Amtrak Joe. He would ride the Amtrak back every day. He could um, from Washington to Delaware to, to say goodnight to his kids. He would try to drop them off in the morning to, for school or whatever, and then come back in the evening like any, any dad who went to the office. It was a longer commute maybe. But um, he wanted to be there. And, and the kids remember him, you know, coming home and, and climbing on their bed with them and playing with them before they went to bed and stuff. And, you know, it was just kind of real um, sort of compassionate sort of fathering that, um, you know, it was kind of endearing. He felt it in his heart that he had a responsibility to those kids. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think later in life, they reciprocated. They felt the same way to him. Hmm. They um, have been part of his political campaigns and his political career um, also, which we can talk about a little later. Um, we live in an age now where the last three presidents were in uh, a bit of a rush, frankly. George W. Bush and Barack Obama spent six years and four years in major elected office before running for president. Donald Trump didn't spend any time in, uh, in a lesser office. Why did Biden wind up spending 35 years in the Senate? Is it only because his first bids for the presidency failed or he, as you said, enjoyed being in the Senate? I think it's, it's got to be a combination of the, both, of the two. You know, he, um, he loved the Senate, um, but he also had these huge ambitions, as he told his first wife early on. That he, he was going to be a senator, but he was also going to be president. Um, I think, you know, he felt comfortable being in the Senate and it wasn't such an absolute necessity for him to, to make the next big jump into the White House if he could, but he certainly had that in mind. And, and as you mentioned, he, he tried and failed um, twice before um, he and Obama um, went into the White House together. Talk about, um, if you can, some of the issues that become important to him as a senator. Um, well, you know, I... Well, some of the issues that were important to him, I don't really get into issues that much in the book for the simple reason that I wanted this book to focus on 
um, the relationship between the two men and how it germinated, grew, and um, became the thing it was um, through their presidency together. Um, but you know, his issues as a senator were part of the things that made him interesting to Barack as a vice president. Um, and the major one really, I guess, was foreign policy. He was a foreign policy maven, really, and he sat on committees. He spent a lot of time traveling to foreign countries. He always liked to make the claim that he knew all the foreign leaders, and so he could, he could you know, negotiate with them and, and talk with them. And for Obama, when he was looking for a vice president, that was really important because he had no experience in that field. Um, I, w- I once saw Biden, um, I actually saw him give a, a speech on strictly on foreign policy and he made a big, um, this is while he was vice president, he made a big show of um, basically saying, uh, you know, the president, Mr., you know, Barack Obama sends me around the, the, the world and he tells me to handle the hemisphere and I'm very glad to handle the hemisphere for him. Um, uh, so what does this upstart senator, I'm talking about Obama now, what does this upstart senator see in Biden, um, both the negatives and the positives. And now let's start with the negatives. Uh, we know he was worried that Biden talked too much. You write about Biden's gaffe when he called Barack Obama clean and articulate. That drove Obama crazy. And you also write at one point that Obama simply can't believe that Biden keeps talking himself and the campaign by extension into trouble. How bad does their feud get? Yeah. Um... It has its it has its moments. Um, I think that Obama was um, pretty patient with with Biden, um, but he knew what he was getting when he got him. He he knew that he was getting a gaff master um, meister, and he and Biden was true to form. He just had a way of saying things that sometimes backed up on him and made him have his foot in his mouth. Um, but you know. Obama, even with that first one about him calling him clean and, and articulate, um, Obama, being the, the cerebral sort of thoughtful person, he tried to analyze what was going on there. And he didn't really even feel that that was a racist remark. He sort of stepped back and thought, well, Joe's an older guy. Where did that come from? It sort of comes from an older world way of thinking that's not necessarily a racist world, or at least in Joe's mind, is not a racist, a, a racist thought. So Biden, Obama, Obama was able to separate himself from some of those gaps. The real problem was more with Obama's staff than with, with Obama himself, because, you know, it's the staff member's job to make sure everything goes smoothly and to keep everyone happy. And when Biden would talk out of turn, they would just go ballistic. They would, they would go nuts. And, um, you know, they would come after Biden in a way that Obama, because they were so aggressive, could sort of separate himself from it. Talk about the click moment that you said they have. Um, I think the chapter is called a click moment. Um, It's rooted in race and Joe Biden's experience as a lifeguard in a black neighborhood in Delaware. Describe that experience for him growing up. Yeah. Um, well, when he was a college student, he spent a summer working at a at a pool as a lifeguard, and um, a lot of his his fellow lifeguard lifeguards there were um, African Americans, and this was really his first exposure on a personal face to face level with a lot of African Americans, and and he, being Joe, wanted to know about them, and they spent a lot of time talking with each other, and and he learned a lot about the way that their lives were so much different than his, and. And he got interested in um, 
you know, the issues that were important to them. I remember one, one thing he, he likes to talk about and he's written about was one of the guys who, who was a lifeguard was going to be traveling through the South and asked Joe if he had a gas can maybe he could borrow for the drive. And Joe had no idea what, why he needed that or what that was all about. And he was quite enlightened to learn that, you know, when this black man and his family were going to be driving through the South, they had trouble stopping in gas stations because they weren't allowed to stop there and get their gas. So they had to carry a gas can to make sure that they could get to their relatives there. And that sort of stuff kind of resonated with Joe being an empathetic fellow. And um, he, uh, you know, he carried it with him. Um, and he, he learned how to relate to um, minorities, I think, from that. He, um, he also says at one point that um, his answer to a question of why do you want to be a senator? And he says, civil rights, man, civil rights. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, he wasn't a firebrand. He wasn't a protester. He wasn't out there in the streets. Um, but he saw a way to do it from the inside, I think. And that's why he wanted to be um, in government rather than on the streets protesting. Um, and that was, that was his approach. This is a diff- this is a bit of an aside, but, um, uh, my favorite books, my favorite books are, um, uh, the Robert Carroll, uh, books along with yours, of course, uh, my favorite books are the Robert Carroll books on Lyndon Johnson. And one of the, um, scenes in that book is Johnson learns from his driver that, um, the limousine that has to be brought back and forth from Washington to Texas is driven by a black chauffeur. And um, LBJ learns um, before he starts trying to pass these momentous civil rights bills that the driver has nowhere to stop in the South and has nowhere to get, you know, a, a, a whatever, a, a piece of fruit or go to the bathroom or a soda or water or something like that or a hotel. And that was an instructive thing. So it's interesting how these powerful white men hear from um, people who have to drive through the South, the reality of segregation. Just something like that resonates in such a way that if you have half a heart, you sit back and you try to put yourself in their shoes and you say, wow, that's something that we need to think about. It's something that we need to talk about and something we need to change. Hmm. Um, Let's go to the positive side of their friendship. So Biden talks a lot, drives everybody crazy. Um, Let's look at some of the similarities. One is older and white. The other is younger and black. One had a two-parent household. The other one didn't. One was going to be the nominee in his mid-40s. The other still hadn't gotten to be the nominee, and he was already in his 60s. Um, How were they similar? Uh, They're lawyers. They're senators. They both have a church background going on. So explain their similarities. Right. I mean, they were similar in, you know, in, in several ways. I think one thing that they, they really clicked on was family and the importance of family. Um, as we mentioned before, Joe was devoted to his kids and to his family and to his wife. And, um, and Obama, coming from a broken family, um, kind of learned that family was really important. He didn't want to make the mistakes that he grew up with from his father having left um, and so I think on that level, it was a very fundamental thing that they, they connected in, in a very important way. One of the things that we hear about um, nominees being concerned about is that the VP choice could be too ambitious, that the VP is always going to be crawling to become president. Was Obama worried about that in Biden, someone who had already illust- you know, displayed the fact that he was interested in the top job? Um, I think, as you say, that's, that's always a concern, and it's an inevitable concern. Um, 
And, you know, these marriages between a president and a vice president are at heart a political marriage. And so you have to factor in all of those aspects of, of what each side really is thinking about, what their ambitions are and whatnot. And I think coming in, um, there was probably concern that, that Joe would be wanting to run for president again. Um, he had done it before. Um, of course, he had, you know, the, the problem of his son Bo's illness and death leading up to the 2016 election. So that was a hurdle for him to sort of get past and try to run again. We can talk about what happened there later if you want. But, yeah. um, you know, I, I do think that that was always an element of, of any consideration with the vice president. And it, was, it was an element of consideration with Joe um, becoming um, Barack's uh, vice president. But one of the things you write is that Biden had a real respect for pecking orders and that he really had a respect for the institution. Right. I mean, that, that was really important, too. Again, I think it goes back to his Catholicism in a way. <laughs> he understood the hierarchies. And as he understood the hierarchy in the Senate, he understood the hierarchy between a president and a vice president. And that his, the, you know, the vice president's power is con completely conditional on, on the president giving him power yeah, to do whatever right. he can. And, uh, and he was completely, completely in on that. He was all in on that. Um, at first, there was a question whether he actually could be all in on that because he'd, he'd never had a boss before. He'd been all those years in the, in the Senate, his own boss, and was able to assert his own power in any way he felt was appropriate. But now he had to answer to somebody else. But his sense of hierarchy, I think, came to his, to his benefit. So how does the, the bromance, you know, now we're getting into the thick of it here, but how does this bromance start to form both behind the scenes and in public? Well, I think they just sort of found, I mean, even like, I think six months into the, into the term, there was, a, there was a moment where they looked at each other or, or um, Biden looked at Obama, I think it was, and said, boy, I, I can't believe how, what good friends we became. You know, or and and the other one said, you know, I can't believe it either. But somehow the two of them just in a very short time found things to admire and respect and and personality traits that they liked in each other and just sort of ran with it. I mean, I like to think also in some ways that they were so different, you know, that that Brock was this aloof guy who, um, you know, was very concise in the way he spoke and and joe was this sort of free wheel and easy going guy who spoke all he wanted and all that sort of stuff that in some ways they filled in the gaps in the other guy and so together they almost formed like this full person you know that they were able to sort of like become something larger by the two of them interacting and becoming one than they were singly alone and they have these viral moments. There's videos of them walking together and running and playing golf. And um, there is this sort of, you know, this sort of undercurrent of race that um, the typical script is that the, the white guy is the guy in charge and the black guy is the, the sidekick. In this case, it was reversed. And that may have reset Americans' brains here a little bit and said, you know, this is um, something that we really enjoy seeing. Right. And, and what the, be the beauty of that was in terms of the bromance and, and the racial aspect of it was that, yes, the, the administration did put out photographs that showed them enjoying each other's company, you know, golfing on the green at the White House, going out and having burgers and doing all that sort of stuff. But they didn't talk about it. They didn't talk. They didn't have to talk about here is what you just described, a black man and a white man 
really just enjoying each other at the highest level of government. And that, send, that sent an unconscious sort of message to the rest of the country and to the world that yes, this is something that can happen and should happen. And just look at these two guys enjoying each other. It, it, it really was quite an, a remarkable thing. And I think in some ways, that's why the idea of bromance resonated so much across the country. What type of VP is Biden to Obama? Um, is he a yes man? Um, certainly he went against script a couple times. Uh, the Bin Laden raid, or maybe not the script is the wrong word, but he went against the boss's sort of wisdom, this, the conventional wisdom there in the Obama White House. Um, the Bin Laden raid, Joe Biden wasn't so sure they should do that. He certainly went out in front of his boss on gay marriage. Right. Well, I don't think he was a yes man at all. He, his whole idea in taking the job was that he wanted to be a, his chief counselor. He wanted to be the guy who's the last guy in the room whispering in his ear when big decisions were made. He wanted to be involved in all the big decisions. But at the same time, he wanted to be the guy who stimulated debate on all of those issues that they had to, had to discuss. And so Joe took it upon himself and Obama agreed to it, to his credit, that Joe would be in those meetings, all of those meetings, and stir debate, would say things maybe that Obama might not want to say because it sounded, it made people who had to help him make decisions sort of feel that he was leaning one way or another. He didn't want to give his, give his way, give his, his view, but he wanted to have everybody involved in the, in the most vigorous discussion that he could have to come to the best policy decision. And Joe played the devil's advocate. He sort of pushed that along and, and made those conversations a little bit more vibrant than they might have been. Did he enjoy being vice president or did he see it as his duty? I think he really loved it. I mean, I think because of the way that the vice presidency was shaped or the way that he shaped his vice presidency, I think he really loved it because he was a central player in everything. He was there in all those, all those big discussions and all those big decisions. And Obama gave him, you know, important tasks to undertake as well. But he didn't want to be just a task man. He wanted to be involved in, in the, the ebb and flow of the administration. And, um, you know, I, you look at him, you look at him, and you look at the two of them. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I think about this sometimes. You could just put the current administration up against their administration and just ask yourself, who's having more fun in this job? You know, those guys really had a really fun time being president and vice president. And you look at the current administration, and you just want to say, are you having fun? I don't think so. You know, um, let's talk about this incredibly emotional moment that happens. And it, 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 hap it happens because um, of what happens to, to poor Bo Biden, um, of course, Joe Biden's son. Um, and um, Bo Biden gets brain cancer and it goes south relatively quickly. Um, and Barack and Joe are sitting there having lunch together. And um, the topic of the Biden house comes up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to preface that, I guess, is that, um, you know, this was really the crystallization of their of their bromance of their relationship in a way, because Obama was so moved by what Joe was going through that it was a very powerful, powerful thing for, for Obama to, um, to experience along with his buddy, that he was there, he was a shoulder all the time, he, he wanted to help, he wanted to hear. And the, 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 the thing you're referencing is that Joe at one point became concerned that um, his son Bo would have to leave his job as Attorney General of Delaware and he wouldn't have 
enough money for to to maintain his finances and his house and whatnot. And and Barack immediately, you know, got up and went around the table and told Joe that just not to worry about money, that if he needed anything, um, Barack, who had, you know, done well with his books and everything, um, was happy to, to loan him money to do anything he needed so that he didn't want money to be a consideration um, for Joe while he was going through this incredible emotional experience that he had to endure. And talk about how the experience of seeing his own son pass away, how does that change Biden's life, both personally and politically? Well, again, it was just another blow. I mean, this is what makes Joe, you know, such an empathetic man. He can understand the hardships and the tragedies that people go through from his, his, early, his earlier one with his wife and child to the loss of his son, Beau. Um, you know, he, he, suffered, he suffered deeply and, and he understands the suffering of others. And, um, you know, it was a very hard one for him to, to bounce back from as well. But it also gave him, you know, an ability to sort of zone in on and, and feel um, compassion for others who are suffering. And it's just, it's something that um, you can't really predict and you can't really say is a, is a, is something that you'd ever expect in someone, but it just, it, it is, it is who he is and what he's all about. I mean, it even goes further in the sense of, we didn't talk about this, but when he, when he was young, he was a stutterer and he had a lot of trouble speaking clearly and he worked very hard to overcome that. Um, and he still has a little problem with it. You see it surfacing every once in a while. But, you know, whenever he's on the campaign trailer, he's out in, out in the world in, in, the, in America and he, he comes across somebody, some kid who's a stutterer, um, or parents know this and they'll want him to be introduced, want their child to be introduced to Joe. Joe will get in their face and he'll just tell them how this doesn't define you. It's not who you are. It's, you can get, you know, you can get past this. He wants to sort of like embrace people's suffering and somehow make it feel better. What is his calculation going into 2016? Um, 2016 was a, was a really hard decision for him on whether he would run for the presidency because um, Bo, Bo died in 2015 and he was still in a, in a state of tremendous mourning. But he and his advisors wanted to just keep the door open and see if he could feel that he could put himself fully into the campaign. And so they did. And um, they did their studies. They, they kept an eye on the electorate. Um, and at the same time, you know, Joe talked to um, um, Barack a lot about it. Um, however, he didn't get very much encouragement from, from Barack. And Barack did not seem to want Joe to run for the presidency in 2016. Um, Obama felt that um, the candidate for the Democratic Party that year would be Hillary Clinton. She would be impossible to unseat as a Democratic rival to her that Joe might try to do that. And he just felt that the, it was her time um, to- And did Biden, not, did Biden not want to run against her? Was he nervous about that fight also? I think he was nervous about it, but you know, I think he, again, as we said earlier, he's an incredibly ambitious guy and he knew that politics is politics. And if you felt you had an opening, you should go for it. Um, but, you know, there were those other considerations and there was Obama standing there kind of 
throwing up a, a red light on him, not really getting behind him. Um, you know, my feeling is, and I wrote about this in the book, is that um, I think Obama felt in his political thinking, um, and we said this is a political marriage, that um, for his own legacy, it would be better to have Hillary Clinton win, run and win because that would cement um, Biden's place as a truly revolutionary political figure, being the first black president followed by the first woman president. Obama would suddenly have this, this mantle of truly having reformed American politics in a way that had never been seen before. Um, but as we know, that didn't quite work out the way he wanted. <laughs> so Biden decides to not run. Um, and there's this incredible moment where the president gives his vice president the Presidential Medal of Freedom and actually surprises him with it. And the video of that moment is a really um, emotional video because Biden gets tremendously choked up when uh, Obama compares him to uh, to Ronald Reagan and to John Paul II. And of course, Vice President Biden makes a big deal of how he knew everybody and knew all them. And that was very emotional for him to be compared uh, compared to people like that. And I think Colin Powell was another one. So explain this moment um, that uh, maybe more than I did that um, Obama decides to give him and surprise him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And does Biden assume that is his swan song at that moment? Well, yeah, I think that um, Obama really wanted to do something for Joe. I mean, it's partly, you know, he, he didn't back him for the, for the presidential run. And we already know now that by that time, what happened. And, um, you know, some people have said, some, of the, some journalists and stuff, that it was kind of like a consolation prize, the Medal of, of Freedom. But I think that it was really from Obama's heart that he truly, you know, respected and loved what um, Biden had done for him as, as his wingman. They were, they were a great team. And he wanted to surprise him. And the staff was driven crazy by keeping this a secret. And it was so hard for them to do it. And everyone was so tense about it until finally it came off. And Biden didn't know until the very last second that this is what um, Obama was going to do for him. Um, and it really was kind of a crowning moment. And people who've watched the, the video and watched it over and over just see that there's this real genuine feeling between the two men um, as they both talked, as they talked about each other. And, you know, watching Joe's reaction, um, was really kind of like the a, a supreme moment of 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 that bromance. Um, it was it was interesting too, in, in the way that um, Obama framed it and came back to their friendship and wanted to sort of make it clear that friendship was really the most important thing between these two guys. And he, I think he he quoted Yates um, in his speech um, for for Biden when he was doing it. And the line I believe was think where our glory most begins and ends and say my glory was that I had such friends. And for this kind of unemotional, aloof um, president to be talking that way about a friend was rather exceptional, I think. He calls him brother too during that. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they um, you know, it, it was really quite a moment. Um, now that we're into this campaign, and I can't believe it's almost over. By the time this episode airs, we'll be uh, we'll be um, into the first days of October. What have you learned new about 
Joe Biden since you wrote the book based on viewing his presidential campaign? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think what I've learned new about him is that he's pretty much the old Joe, <laughs> um, which is a good and bad thing, I suppose. You know, he, he has trouble sometimes getting tongue tied with his words and it gets him in trouble. Um, but at the same time, he's still this compassionate fellow that's really kind of unique in politics. I mean, in the research I did in this book and the, the people I talked to and the things that I read and the things that I watched, um, you know, you kind of get cynical about politics and you think that there aren't people out there who, who truly have the heart that you would hope a, somebody who's in public service would have. And as far as I could see and tell, this is the man that, um, that Joe is and was and continues to be. And in some ways, I mean, we could talk a little bit about the, the election this year. I mean, we all saw that how he was, he was basically given up for dead early on. You know, nobody thought that he would be the, you know, the, the candidate for the Democrats at this time. But things turned and, and, and it went a different way. Um, he rose up from, from the dead in, in a sense. Um, and then we had the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this and how, you know, history sort of works in funny ways. And you yourself, you're, you're you know, a, his, a historical scholar yourself. You've, you've read a lot about this, how certain figures rise to certain moments and take over um, history in ways that you would never have expected. But suddenly we have, on the one side, we have this, this president, current president, who is not showing a lot of compassion, is not showing us a lot of sense of, of what America is going through and all of this, the struggles that, that, are, that um, American families are, are experiencing and, and terrible disease and death. Um, that everyone is suffering from during the pandemic. And on the other side, we have this guy who all he does, really what he does best <laughs> is show compassion and be empathetic. So in a way, it wasn't that, that Joe went and found history, that history almost found him at this moment. And in some ways, he may be the right person at this time to, to you know, see America through this this. Um, horrible health crisis. It's just so funny the way that the, the trends of history are, are, can change on a dime and, and present us with, with new things we never thought were possible. Have you interviewed him in person? Nope. Nah, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to me and, and neither would Obama, which was uh, quite frustrating. Interesting. Um, uh, do you think, then I guess the next question is, do you, do you think that it frustrates him to be in this situation where he can't be out there in public um or does he feel like he's able to sort of get his message out without doing the interviews and without being out there very often yeah i think again that's sort of that goes two ways with him in a sense that i think he would love to be out there he'd love to be out there you know seeing people touching people being with people um but in some ways i think it's played to his advantage of him being a little less seen than he has been, than he would have been if we didn't have the pandemic, um, because he has less opportunity for gaffes. He has less opportunity to, to, to do, say things he shouldn't say. And in a sense, he has a better opportunity to simply be the anti-Trump in a quieter way and let Trump be Trump, so that the distinction between the two of them is drawn that much more sharply without um, Biden in any way 
sort of messing it up with, with being out in the campaign trail. And I mean, it's, it's a harsh thing to say, maybe, but that I think is, is partly what's at work here. And he has the advantage also that everybody knows who he is and um, people don't have to be introduced to him. They sort of know him through these four years he spent with his partnership with Obama. Right, right. I mean, he is, he is a known quantity. And, um, you know, I think he just needs to, to get through all of this going forward without any major stumbles. Stephen Levingston, author of Barack and Joe, The Making of an Extraordinary Partnership. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Well, certainly check out that book and also uh, his other book, Kennedy and King, which is, I'd be happy to do another show on that one. That is just an outstanding book. Both are outstanding. And remember, uh, our episode on President Trump's background is now available as well as we explore the president's life as told through his relationship with television. And for the rest of this month, we're going to have four episodes examining campaigning, whether the presidency is too difficult of a job for one man or one person to do. And also we'll talk about the history of the cabinet and how presidents shape political rhetoric. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.